Chapter Fourteen of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Fourteen, The Expedition of eighteen sixty-five. Part One. It is a long light which has no morning. At last, the day is breaking. While weary eyes are watching the east, daylight comes over the sea. Five years have passed away, and though the time seemed long as an arctic winter, that only made more bright the rising of the sun. Those years of patient experiment, when scientific men were applying tests without number, and submarine lines were feeling their way along the deep sea floor in all the waters of the world, at last brought forth their fruit in that renewed confidence which is the forerunner of victory. So strong was this feeling that as early as August 1863, although the capital was not raised, the board advertised for proposals for a cable suitable to be laid across the Atlantic Ocean, and in order to leave invention entirely unfettered, abstained from any dictation as to the form or materials to be adopted, merely stipulating for a working speed of eight words a minute. To this request they received, in the course of a few weeks, seventeen different proposals from as many companies, many of them firms of large wealth and experience. These different tenders, with the numerous specimens of cables and materials, were at once submitted to a consulting committee, composed in part of members of the committee, which had already rendered such service by its advice. It consisted of Captain Douglas Galton, William Fairbairn, Professor C. Wheatstone, William Whitworth, and Professor William Thompson. There were no more distinguished engineers and electricians in the world. They examined all the proposals, and then, taking up one by one the different samples of cable, caused them in turn to be subjected to the severest tests. This took a long time, as it required a great number of experiments, but the result was highly satisfactory. The committee were of all one mind, and recommended unanimously that the board should accept the tenders of Messrs. Glass, Elliot, and Co., and the general principle of their proposed cable, but advised that before settling the final specification, every portion of the material to be employed should be tested with the greatest care, both separately and in combination, so as to ascertain what further improvements could be made. To this the manufacturers readily consented, feeling a noble ambition to justify the confidence of the committee and the public. They provided abundant materials for fresh experiments. New cables were made and tested in different lengths, and experiments were also tried upon different qualities of wire and hemp that were to compose as external protection. The result of all these investigations was a selection of a model which seemed to combine every excellence and to approach absolute perfection. Such was the cable which this eminent firm offered to manufacture, and to lay across the Atlantic, and that on terms so favorable that it seemed as if it could not be difficult to raise the capital and proceed with the work. Indeed, a contract was partially made to that effect. So confident was Mr. Field, who was then in London, that an expedition would sail the following summer, that he insured his stock, part of it only against ordinary sea risks, but all part also to be laid and to work. But hardly had he left England before there was some unforeseen hitch in the arrangements. The money was not forthcoming, or some of the conditions were not complied with, and he had the mortification to receive letters saying that the whole enterprise was postponed for another year. This was indeed discouraging, yet the sudden dropping of the scheme did not imply a loss of interest or faith on the part of those embarked in it. They believed in it as much as ever, but the general public did not respond to the call for more capital. Alas, that the noblest enterprises should so often be delayed or defeated by the want of money. Capital is always cautious and timid, and follows slowly in the path of great victories. If Columbus, instead of the patronage of a queen full of womanly enthusiasm, 
had depended on a stock company for the means for his expedition, he might never have sailed from the shores of Spain. Happy was it for mankind that his faith and patience did not wear out while going from court to court and kingdom to kingdom, and almost begging his way from door to door. But it is not in human nature, least of all in American nature, to despond long. Though ten years of constant defeat would seem to have wrought a lasting discouragement, yet again and again did the baffled spirit of enterprise return to the attempt. In January 1864, Mr. Field was once more on his way to England. He found the directors, as before, deeply interested in the enterprise, and wishing its success. With a grateful heart, he bore witness to their unfaltering courage. But mere courage and good wishes would not lay the Atlantic Telegraph. Yet what could they do? They could not be expected to advance all the capital themselves. They had already subscribed liberally, and he could not ask them to do more. But with all the efforts that had been made in England and America, not half the capital was yet raised. The machinery was in a deadlock, with little prospect of being able to move. It was the misfortune of the enterprise that there was no man who made it his sole and exclusive charge. The board of directors contained some of the best men in London, but they were, almost without exception, engaged in very large affairs of their own, with no leisure to make a public enterprise their special care. To ensure success, it needed a trial of the one-man power, one brain planning night and day, one agency incessantly at work, stirring up directors, contractors, and engineers, and one will pushing it forward by main strength. This was the force now to be applied. The first element needed to be put life into the old system was an infusion of new blood, new capital, and new men. While the enterprise was in this state of collapse, Mr. Field addressed himself to a gentleman with whom, until then, he had no personal acquaintance, but who was well known in London as one of the largest capitalists of Great Britain, Mr. Thomas Brassey. Their first interview was somewhat remarkable. Referring to it a few months after, Mr. Field said, when I arrived in this country in January last, the Atlantic Telegraph Company trembled in the balance. We were in want of funds, and were in negotiations with the government, and making great exertions to raise the money. At this juncture I was introduced to a gentleman of great integrity and enterprise, who was well known, not only for his wealth, but for his foresight, and in attempting to enlist him in our cause, he put me through such a cross-examination as I had never before experienced. I thought I was in the witness-box. He inquired of me the practicability of the scheme, what it would pay, and everything else connected with it. But before I left him, I had the pleasure of hearing him say that it was a great national enterprise that ought to be carried out, and, he added, I will be one of ten to find the money required for it. From that day to this he has never hesitated about it, and when I mentioned his name, you will know him as a man whose word is as good as his bond, and as for his bond, there is no better in England. Having thus secured one powerful ally, Mr. Field took courage in the hope to find another. He says, the words spoken by Mr. Brassey in the latter part of January, let the electric telegraph be laid between England and America, encouraged us all, and made us believe we should succeed in raising the necessary capital, and I then went to work to find nine other Thomas Brassies. I did not know whether he was an Englishman, a Scotchman, or an Irishman, but I made up my mind that he combined all the good qualities of every one of them. And after considerable search, I met with a rich friend from Manchester, Mr. Now Sir John Pender, and I asked him if he would second Mr. Brassey, and walked with him from 28 Pall Mall to the House of Commons, of which he is a member. Before we reached the House, he expected his willingness to do so to an equal amount. This was putting strong arms to the wheel. A few days after, a combination was formed to carry on the whole business of making submarine telegraphs by union of the Gutta Percha Company with the firm of Glass, Elliott & Co., the principal manufacturers of sea cables, making one grand concern to be called the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company. These two great capitalists entered into the new organization, of which Mr. Pender was made chairman. 
the Gutta Percha Company bought in still further strength to the joint enterprise, in the person of Mr. Willoughby Smith, their electrician, and of Mr. John Chatterton, the inventor of the insulating material known as Chatterton's Compound. The union of all these men made a combination of practical skill and financial ability, such as could be found in few companies in England or in the world. Mr. R. A. Glass was chosen managing director, a gentleman who seemed born to be a manager. Such power had he of gathering about him talent in every department, and combining all into one organization. Reinforced by such powerful aid, the new company now came forward, and offered at one stroke to take all the remaining stock of the company. This was more than half the whole capital. As yet, of the six hundred thousand pounds required, but two hundred eighty-five thousand pounds had been subscribed. Now this princely company offered to take the balance themselves, three hundred and fifteen thousand pounds. They did more. They took one hundred thousand pounds of bonds, and so by one dead lift these stalwart Englishmen took the whole enterprise on their broad shoulders. From that hour the problem was sold. Thus, after a deadlock of six months, the wheels were unloosed, and the gigantic machinery began to revolve. This was a triumph worthy to be honoured in the way that Englishmen love, by a little festivity, and as it chanced to be now ten years since Mr. Field had embarked in the enterprise, the pleasant thought occurred to him of getting his friends together to celebrate the anniversary. Accordingly, on the 15th of March, he invited them to dine together at the Buckingham Palace Hotel. It was a joyous occasion, and called forth the usual amount of toasts and speeches. Of the latter, those of Mr. Adams, the American minister, and of John Bright, were wildly copied in the United States. The next day was the annual meeting of the Atlantic Telegraph Company, when the chairman, the Right Honorable James Stuart Wortley, preferred to the gathering of the night before. Without saying anything to detract from my deep gratitude to the other directors, I cannot help especially alluding to Mr. Cyrus Field, who is present today and who has crossed the Atlantic thirty-one times in the service of this company, having celebrated at this table yesterday the anniversary of the tenth year of the day when he first left Boston in the service of the company. Collected round his table last night were a company of distinguished men, members of Parliament, great capitalists, distinguished merchants and manufacturers, engineers and men of science, such as is rarely found together, even in the highest house in this great metropolis. It was very agreeable to see an American citizen so surrounded. It was still more gratifying, inasmuch as we were there to celebrate the approaching accomplishment of the Atlantic Telegraph. This was a congratulation on an escape from death, for their cherished scheme had just passed through a critical period of its history. The enterprise had been in great danger of abandonment, at least for years, a peril from which it had been rescued only by the most prompt and vigorous effort. Thus, after infinite toil, the wreck of old disasters was cleared away, and the mighty task begun anew. The works of the Telegraph Construction and Maintenance Company were the largest in the world, and all their resources were now put in requisition. Never did greater care preside over a public enterprise. It was a case in which the motive and interest was seconded or overborne by pride and ambition. A cable was to be made to span the Atlantic Ocean, and to join the hemispheres, and they were determined to produce a work that should be as nearly perfect as human skill could make it. The scientific committee that had so long investigated the subject had approved a particular form of cable as the one most calculated to ensure a success in the present state of our experimental knowledge respecting deep-speed cables, but at the same time recommended the utmost vigilance at every stage of the manufacture. These precautions deserve to be noted as showing with what jealous care science watches over the birth of a great enterprise and prescribes the conditions of success. They recommended that the conductivity of the wire should be fixed at a high standard, certainly not less than 85%, that the cable should be at least equal to the best ever made, 
that the core should be electrically perfect, that it should be tested under hydraulic pressure, and at the highest pressure attainable in the tanks at the company's works, that after this pressure the core should be examined again, and before receiving its outer covering, be required to pass the full electrical test under water, that careful and frequent mechanical tests be made upon the iron wire and hemp as to their strength, that special care be given to the joints where different lengths of cable were spliced together, and that when completed the whole be tested under water for some length of time at a temperature of seventy-five degrees. This was a higher by forty degrees than the temperature of the Atlantic. The insulation is improved by cold, so that if it remained perfect in this warm weather, it could not fail in the icy depths of the ocean. After passing through such elaborate tests, all will be glad to see the final product of so much care and skill. As the long line begins to reel off from the great wheels and drums, we may examine it in its completed and more perfect form. It is only necessary to compare it with the cable laid in 1858 to show its immense superiority. A glance at the two as they appear on the preceding page will show that the cable had grown since at first it was planted in the ocean, as if it were a living product of the sea. This growth had been in every part from core to circumference. First, the central copper wire, which was the spinal cord, the nerve along which the center current was to run, was nearly three times as large as before. Professor Thompson had long seen that this was a condition of success. While joining Hartley in the attempts of 1857 to 58, he felt that an error was committed in the smallness of the cable, that the copper conductors and the gutta percha covering should both be larger. The old conductor was a strand consisting of seven fine wires, six laid round one, and weighed only 107 pounds to the mile. The new was composed of the same number of wires, but weighed 300 pounds to the mile. As it was made of the finest copper that could be obtained in the world, it was a perfect conductor. Next, to secure insulation, it was first embedded for solidity in Chatterton's compound, a preparation impervious to water, and then covered with four layers of gutta percha, which were laid alternately with four thin layers of Chatterton's compound. The old cable had but three coatings of gutta percha, with nothing between. Its entire insulation weighed but 261 pounds to the mile, while that of the new weighed 400 pounds. But a conductor ever so perfect, with insulation complete, was useless without proper external protection, to guard it against the dangers which must attend the long and difficult process of laying it across the ocean. The old cable had broken a number of times. The new must be made stronger. To this end it was encased with ten solid wires of the best iron, or rather of a soft steel, like that used in the making of Whitworth's cannon. This made the cable much heavier than before. The old cable weighed but twenty hundred weight to the mile, while the new one reached thirty-five hundred weight and three-quarters. But mere size and weight were nothing, except as they indicated increased strength. This was secured not only by the large iron wires, but by a further coating of rope. Each wire was surrounded separately with five strands of manila yarn, saturated with a preservative compound, and the whole laid spirally round the core, which latter was padded with ordinary hemp, saturated with the same preservative mixture. This rope covering was important in several aspects. It kept the wires from coming in contact with the salt water, by which they might be corroded, and while it added greatly to the strength of the cable, it gave also its own flexibility, so that while it had the strength of an iron chain, it also had the lightness and flexibility of a common ship's rope. The union of two qualities was all-important. The great problem had been to combine strength with flexibility. Near dead weight was an objection. The new cable, though nearly twice as heavy as the old in air, when immersed in water, weighed but a trifle more, so that it was really much lighter in proportion to its size. This increased lightness was a very important matter in laying the cable, as it caused it to sink slowly. 
The old cable, though smaller, was heavy almost as a rod of iron, so that as it ran out it dropped at an angle which exposed it to great danger in case of a sudden lurch of the ship. Thus, in 1857, it was broken by the stern of the Niagara, being thrown up on a wave just as the brakes were shut down. Now the cable, being partially buoyed by the rope, would float out to a great distance from the ship and sink down slowly in the deep waters. By this combination of rope and iron, a cable was secured two and a half times as strong as the old, the breaking strain of the former having been three tons five hundred weight, and of the latter seven tons and fifteen hundred weight. Or, to put it in another form, the contract strain of the former was less than five times its own weight per mile in water, so that if the cable had been laid in some parts of the Atlantic, where the ocean is more than five miles deep, it would have broken under the enormous strain. But the contract strain of the new cable was equal to eleven times its weight per mile in water, which, as the greatest depth of water to be passed was but two and a half miles, rendered the cable more than four times as strong as was required. This great chain which was to bind the sea was to be 2,300 nautical miles long, or nearly 2,700 statute miles. But where could this enormous bulk be stowed? Its weight would sink the Spanish Armada. In 1858 the cable loaded down two of the largest ships of war in the world, the Niagara and the Agamemnon. Yet now one much larger and bulkier was to be taken on board. This might have proved a serious embarrassment, but that a few years before there had been built in England a ship of enormous proportions. The great eastern, whose iron walls had been reared by the genius of Brunel, had been for ten years waiting for a mission. As a specimen of marine architecture she was perfect. She walked the waters in towering pride, scarce bending her imperial head to the waves that broke against her sides, as against the rocks of the shore. But with all her noble qualities she was too great for the ordinary demands of commerce. Her very size was against her, and while smaller ships, on which she looked down with contempt, were continually flying to and fro across the sea, this leviathan, hugest of all God's works, that swimmed the ocean stream, could find nothing worthy of her greatness. Here, then, was the vessel to receive the Atlantic cable. Seeing her fitness for the purpose, a few of the gentlemen who were active in reviving the Atlantic telegraph combined to purchase her, as she was about to be sold. One of them went down with all speed to Liverpool, and the next day telegraphed that the big ship was theirs. The new owners at once put her at the service of the Atlantic Company, with the express agreement that any compensation for her use should depend on the success of the expedition. Next to the good fortune of finding such a ship ready to their hands was that of finding an officer worthy to command her. Captain James Anderson of the China, one of the Cunard steamers, had long been known to the traveling public both of England and America, and no one ever crossed the sea with him without the strongest feeling of respect for his manly and seamanly qualities. A thorough master of his profession, having followed the sea for a quarter of a century, he was also a man of much general intelligence, and of no small scientific attainments. But it was something more than this which inspired such confidence. It was his ceaseless watchfulness. He always carried with him a feeling of religious responsibility for the lives of all on board, and for every interest committed to him. A man of few words, modest in manner, he was yet clear in judgment and prompt in action. This vigilance was especially marked in moments of danger. When a storm was gathering, all who saw that tall figure on the wheelhouse, watching with a keen eye every spar in the ship and every cloud in the horizon, felt a new security from being under his care. Such was the man to be put in charge of a great expedition. He was recommended by Mr. Field in the strongest terms, and was chosen unanimously by the board. The Cunard Company, with great generosity, consented to give up his services, valuable as they were, to forward an enterprise of such public interest. 
Being thus free, he accepted the trust, and entered upon it with enthusiasm. How well he fulfilled the expectations of all, the sequel will show. Footnote A Nearly a year and a half after this, when the cable was safely landed in Newfoundland, Captain Anderson, still on board the Great Eastern, in a letter to a friend, thus referred to his first connection with the Atlantic Telegraph. I cannot tell you of how I have felt since our success. It is only seventeen months since I first walked up to the top of the paddle-box of this ship at Sheerness, upon a dark rainy night, reviewed my past career in my mind, and tried to look into the future, to see what I had undertaken, and realize, if possible, what this new step would develop. I cannot say I believe much in cables. I rather think I do not. But I did believe Mr. Field was an earnest man, of great force of character, and working under a strong conviction that what he was attempting was thoroughly practicable, and I knew enough of the names with which he had associated himself in the enterprise to feel that it was a real, true, honest effort, worthy of all the application and energy of one's manhood. And come what might in the future, I resolved to do my very utmost, and to do nothing else until it was over. More completely, however, than my resolve foreshadowed, I dropped inch by inch, or step by step, into the work, until I had no mind, no soul, no sleep, that was not tinged with cable. In a word, I accused Mr. Field of having dragged me into a vortex that I could not get out of, and did not wish to try, and the sum total of all this is to lay a thread across an ocean. Dr. Russell compared it to an elephant stretching a cobweb, and there lay its very danger. The more you multiply the mechanism, the more you increase the risk. End footnote. The work now went on with speed. The wheels began to hum, and the great drums to reel off that line, which, considering the distance it was to span, was hardly to be measured by miles, but rather by degrees of the earth's surface. Mere figures give but a vague impression of vast spaces. But it is a curious fact, ascertained by an exact computation, that if all the wires of copper and of iron, with the layers that made up the core, and the outer covering, and the strands of yarn that were twisted into this one knotted sea cable, replaced end to end, the whole length would reach from the earth to the moon. As it came from the works in its completed state, it was plunged in water, to make it familiar with the element which was to be its future home. In the yards of the company stood eight large tanks, which could hold each a hundred and forty miles. Here the cable was coiled to hibernate, till it should be wanted for use the coming spring. End of Part 1 of Chapter 14 of The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph Recorded by Alex C. Talander, www.bookbanter.net